by Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on TAP we have Blowout, starring John Travolta, Nancy Allen, and John Lithgow, directed by Brian De Palma. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. We're getting back on our cask train of Who Done It? We Talk About It. And today we're talking about Blowout from 1981. This is our second time talking about Brian De Palma. Our third time talking about Nancy Allen because she was in Robocop and right. then Carrie. Sorry, yeah. So I'm excited to talk about this. We did another what we call a Rye Watch and we just finished watching it. So we're coming in like super fresh. It's just like everything's like right there. But before we get started, let's have some more of this 1792. Sounds good. While you're pouring that, I kind of want to shout out uh, one of our listeners, Brett, out there, who, in response to our question last week, was we talked about, you know, series that need to reboot, uh, kind of based on... And one of the ones he mentioned, too, was X-Men past the second film. And I was like, you know what, that's pretty good, because how many times can they possibly botch Dark Phoenix? Exactly. (laughs) So what I told him, I was like, well, now that that's in the hands of Disney, I'm sure we're going to get a reboot of sorts of that entire team that is not going to be what we've seen before. So, Of all the failures of Dark Phoenix, that series is in shambles now, so they're going to need to press the reset button. Do something with it, yeah. So it is... Set up for exactly what Brett's asking. Mm-hmm. Like that move, that series is ready to be redone. Yeah, uh, because like we talked about last week, that was the middle finger that they threw on the way out the door. And you know what's funny? I think we've talked about this off mic that like I think the best iteration of that is actually that '90s Fox TV show. Of oh yeah, Third so, Fe- they handle that perfectly. They sure do. Which is on Disney Plus, by the way. Which you know that kind of the world's ablaze with that right now. We've kind of just kind of put our toes into that 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 series. So since you brought it up, yeah. First episode of The Mandalorian, thumbs up or thumbs down for you? Thumbs up. Yeah, me too. We watched the second one last night too. Like I said, the production value is top notch. And, you know, when handling something like Star Wars, you can't, I don't think you can cut corners with that series. We've got to think about doing something Star Wars related here in the future. Oh, yeah. (laughs) There There you have it. All right. Well, excellent. So to kind of get started, being that, you know, Brian De Palma to me is a very interesting director being on like how he started out and then he kind of gets kind of labeled as, you know, kind of this ripoff Hitchcock, which, you know, there might be some truth to that. But then I think what he does with it is pretty unique in its own right as well. Sure. And then to kind of take that into big budget fare and doing stuff like Scarface and Mission Impossible to like just totally destroying it with like Black Dahlia. Like, so he's had an interesting career to say the least. So... Kind of not like having blowout in consideration. We try to keep the film we're going to talk about to kind of leave for the happy hour discussion of our episodes. But Matt, what are your top three Brian De Palma films? There's some that uh, kind of blended together because I think Brian De Palma has mm-hmm. success in two areas. Yeah. Okay. He has success with Hitchcockian thriller remakes mm-hmm. and gangsters. Yeah. He does yeah. both of those really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite that, you know, you mentioned. Black Dahlia. Mm-hmm. That's not on the list of his best. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Uh, for everything that we have talked at nauseum in this podcast about Serenity and what it didn't do and what for it film did. noir, yeah, I would argue that the Black Dahlia 
left that genre in the place that Serenity then continued to destroy. <laughs> well, I, I'll just kind of say just some behind-the-scenes wry smile at that. Black Dahlia was going to be in that cast. I think it was right. going to be filmed too. Right. But then Serenity was just, I think you even said, it was like, man, we need to do something else because we can't have like two busts like back-to-back. <laughs> yeah, insider information. That was initially one of the ones we wanted to do just because there's so much to talk about and how that didn't work with a really good te- cast. Mm-hmm. But we can say that. Okay, but that's not, that's not today's podcast. Yeah. Today is, or this question is De Palma's best. For me, number three, this isn't by a lot. Yeah. And there were a couple other ones I considered. Number three for me is Carrie. Mm. Um, You know, there's certain directors that tend to gravitate toward particular actors. Mm -hmm. We can talk about Nolan's crew that he likes to use so much, obviously, Mm -hmm. which is DiCaprio. Um, And other ones such... But I think De Palma has a kind of stable of four. Mm-hmm. De Niro, Travolta, Nancy Allen, um, John Lithgow, you could make the case yeah, if yeah. we get into the he one. Or, Raising Cane. Raising Cane, mm-hmm. yeah, that's right. In this film as well. Yep. Um, we've already talked about Carrie, so I'm not going to go into too much in depth on this again. Yeah. John Travolta has an interesting career to me. Yeah. This is a guy that has some very landmark roles. And I'm even going to say it from Vinnie Barbarino. Yeah. To, you know, any iteration that you want to go on to where he is now. Yeah. It's just, I think it's kind of a metaphor for De Palma in a sense. Sure. Yeah. How good and how bad it can be at various times. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, not to go into it too much because if you want to listen to my Carrie breakdown or Jesse's Carrie breakdown, there's a whole podcast about it. Yeah. Carrie's a really good film. It's number three for me. We'll just no. keep it going because my number three is also Carrie. Okay. And we've talked about just how important that is, not only for, you know, De Palma's career, but Stephen King's trajectory as well. And, you know, that's such kind of a landmark horror film that was a decent hit. But, like, as we've talked about in that episode, it's a pretty good movie with some, especially Sissy Spacek and Piper Laurie really, really kill it in that film. To that, to Piper Laurie. Yeah. And just, like, what we talked about, just that end sequence is just, it's just masterfully done. And I think that's kind of one thing I want to talk about with De Palma is I think De Palma as a director I can feel is just very in control of the film he's trying to tell. Sure. From all sound, camera, lighting, acting, mm-hmm. the writing. Story. Yeah. Story. He's, like, he's just so in control of this animal. So that's number three for me. Okay. Uh, hopefully these aren't the same three for both of us. Yeah, okay. Number two is Dress to Kill. Mm. Uh, this is one of the moments in his filmography that is a clear emulation of the man he idolized, which is Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say this is psycho, but you can't but not draw the similarities. Definitely. And in our film that we're going to do today, there's also yeah. some Hitch, uh, some psycho-esque moments. I, I, I got kind of a North by Northwest vibe from this film. Uh, there's that. There's North by Northwest. Um, I, there's a bit of a vertigo feel to it. Sure. And that the way John Travolta is so stalkery when he's chasing after Nancy Allen. Oh, good. Um, yeah. But that movie, I really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. It's been a while since I've seen it. Yeah. Disposing of Angie Dickinson the way that he does is yeah, very he, Janet Lee in Psycho, mm-hmm. right? Um, Michael Caine's in that one. Michael Caine's in that. Yep. And there's a very interesting bit that he tackles in that film that's also Marnie-esque, and that's the look at the therapist and the sexual repression that the therapist is dealing with. Now, that's not necessarily Marnie, but that's Hitchcock's first attempt at building thriller through sexual themes. Yes. And that movie clearly is based on that. Yeah. I I, I haven't seen it in a long time, 
maybe about five or six years ago. We might have to do like, because I know we've done Carrie and now Blowout. There's still so many De Palma films we can still talk about, whether it be Sisters, Dressed to Kill, Obsession, Body Double. That's like, the one I wanted. Yeah, we could do a De Palma cast because we still haven't, we haven't even like tapped like all the stuff he's done. Obsession would be a fun one to do if we both watched it cold because we've never seen it. For mm-hmm. everybody out there, Obsession is his attempt at Vertigo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he even did a kind of a quasi telekinesis follow up to Carrie called The Fury with Kirk Douglas. Right. So, yeah, there's all those ones we could still talk about. I love your number two. Thank you. It's also on my list, oh, boy. but not yet. Okay. <laughs> number okay. two for me, I'm going to tell just a little story. So, I think it was the graduate episode when we kind of talked about Matt and I's kind of working relationship. And I took a film class that, that he taught called uh, Real History, which is kind of just looking at films through the, the vein of the decades in history. My number two is actually the third film we watched in your class. We watched The Searchers first, and then High Noon, and then The Untouchables. I really like The Untouchables just because I don't think we get a lot of that 1920s gangster film, that Capone, Tommy Gunn aesthetic, uh, you know, that like Dick Tracy type of like crime film. And I really like, you know, just Elliot Ness and his band of Untouchables, Kevin Costner and Sean Connery, Andy Garcia, taking down Robert De Niro's Al Capone. That's pretty awesome. And whether that you know he's paying homage to the Odessa Steps from Battleship Potemkin, a great sequence. Yeah, yeah. That's just an exciting film, um, right down to like, and it's it's a remake of of a television show, uh, The Untouchables with Robert Stack. So to bring along Billy Drago and cast him as Frank Nitti yes. as the Man in White, mm-hmm. and to build that movie the way they do. Uh, I love the sequence in that film where mm-hmm. we are outside Malone's apartment. Mm-hmm. And we are looking through the the, the windows mm-hmm. as Capone's derelicts have come to dispose of him. Yeah. The POV on that is so cool because mm-hmm. they're climbing literally on the building, yeah. which doesn't make sense because there's not really a rail. Yeah. But it works in such a cool way to the point where then Malone comes around the corner and Drago as Nitty shows up and yes. just blasts Blows him, him away. Yep. So well done. All right, enough of this running shit. Yeah. <laughs> I love The Untouchables. That's my number two. Okay, number one. Yes. Carlito's Way. Oh, that's good. That might be in my top ten of all time. Mm. I, I really love that film. It's Al Pacino that is not so over-the-top emoting Al Pacino. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's moments in Scent of a Woman where Al Pacino is just doing his best Al Pacino as Al Pacino, fired up Al Pacino. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a bit more restrained. The criminal who's come back from doing some time and trying to set his life straight. Uh, Sean Penn is fantastic in that movie. Yeah, yeah. If you all have not seen Carlito's Way, don't don't walk, run immediately. Yeah. I, that film comes on and... I, that is a must-watch for me every time. People talk about Pacino yeah. in The Godfather. No one's going to argue with that. And then Heat comes up a lot with yeah. Michael Mann and Robert mm-hmm. De Niro. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Scarface. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're curious if that made your De Palma list. Um, Carlito's Way Al Pacino is the best of all of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael Corleone in number two, Godfather. Okay, that's a bit... That's kind of untouchably good Mm -hmm. but yeah man that movie's just really a great fun watch if you like the gangster genre yeah do it yeah that's a that's a good one yeah that's it didn't make my list but just kind of some of the stuff that was kind of just on the outside looking in you know i really like you know sisters yeah and also uh 
the first Mission Impossible, which is kind of interesting because that that's like the closest like adaptation of the television show, actually. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of got like very John Wooey and really action oriented with the people that got involved in that series. But he really kind of had that aesthetic of what they did in the television show. And um, and Scarface, I actually watched Scarface a few months ago and it wasn't as bad as I kind of remembered it on my first viewing. It's a pretty decently made film. Yeah. Um, pretty long, though. But my number one is what you already mentioned, is Dress to Kill. In all his iterations of trying to pay homage or whatever to Hitchcock, I think this is his best version of that. Um, from like the opening sequence to, you know, her, uh, Keith Gordon from Christine fame plays her son. And he kind of does this like team up with Nancy Allen, this like almost like prostitute to kind of like try and like figure out like who this killer is. I just I love the cinematography. I'm going to talk about that a little bit coming up. But I, I that's just such a... It's it's a quasi slasher, but it to me the, all the best elements of Hitchcock ring true in that film uh, to me. So that's my number one. Very interesting career of of De Palma, you know, kind of being a part of this new Hollywood movement with, you know, with Coppola and Spielberg and Scorsese, and they're kind of all just truly making and and, and changing films around this time, mm-hmm. like especially today's film and and it's ending like the, the, this is a type of like ending that would not fly in the 60s you know what i mean no question yeah and also frustrations that i think brian de palma probably feels in his own career and his fans that we can see too is i don't know if it's selection or limits that studio system put on him yeah but a couple of decisions that for everything that's good about De Palma is also completely derailed essentially a non-entity anymore yeah definitely uh and you mentioned Carrie and a you know Scarface mm-hmm. and you say that guy doesn't even make movies anymore and yeah you kind of have to scratch your head like, what, what happened yeah what and what happened and again like I think we both agree that although those are fine films maybe not his best but widely recognized mm-hmm. as cinematic iconic films mm-hmm. the untouchable like go on and on and dead yeah. DOA yeah it's weird not literally dead but career kind yeah. of stalled out he maybe did he and um uh what's his name almost famous um Oh, Cameron Crowe. Cameron Crowe should team up and try to revitalize it together. Oh, it's that an <laughs> He's guy. more dead. We bought a zoo. Are you kidding me? Oh, no. Shit. Well, excellent start. Let's get into Happy Hour. I'm excited to talk about this film. So, again, if you haven't seen it, you can still listen. I, we have a lot of people that tell me, like, hey, I listened to it. I haven't even seen the film. Mm-hmm. It's currently on Amazon Prime or if you subscribe to the Criterion channel. I can't stress enough how you should at least check this film out if you've never never seen it. It it's kind of one of those ones too that like, man, I like if you didn't know about it, you would it it, it kind of is invisible in in film history, which right. is which is weird to me. So let's get right to it and talk about blowout. Blowout starts out with probably something that is probably why I like it. It's essentially a slasher film. Right. And the cheesiest made slasher film like it. Not even like Slumber Party Massacre is like as cheesy as this. As they're kind of this guy's going through the windows and kind of checking out the co-eds and sneaking into, you know, essentially off one of the 
the women in, in in the shower. Don't you just love the depiction of the house too? It's yes. every room is another element of some sexuality. We have masturbation. <clears throat> we have lingerie dancing. We have two people just getting down on the floor. Like every yes. room, there's nobody just like. Reading a book. No, yeah. It's, everyone's engaged in some sexual activity. Some so nudi- funny. N- nudist whatever. Yeah, which funny. is funny because all of the, like, it's, I think it's sisters, Carrie, yeah. dressed to kill this. Like, it's just opening credit nudity. Like, you're just, you're just giving it to you right away. So, you know, as a kid, you'd have to, like, wait through, like, movies on HBO. And if you saw the nudity label, you just have to kind of wait for it to show up. Not if you're watching a De Palma film. It's right there at the beginning. <laughs> let's go ahead and check this box, get it out of the way, let's and get, get on with the movie, let's right? Let's get on with the movie. <laughs> but funny. we cut to this, like... Like this, the the essential kill. This kind of again, like looking at like Hitchcock and Psycho in the shower, and it's this horrible like Foley scream. So we cut to that to this <laughs> this sound studio, and we're introduced to uh, John Travolta's character of Jack Taylor. And Matt, we talk a lot about whether we're, we're when we're screenwriting or on film about like interesting professions. Yeah, I think Jack has a very interesting profession of. He's not like the director or the writer or the editor or the composer of the music. He's the sound Foley artist. Yeah. So his job's to like kind of go about into the environment and collect uh, just different kind of sounds to kind of implement into films. What, what do you what do you think about this the, this profession? It's I, I've never seen this before on film. An introduction to a character and an unfamiliar job is interesting to the audience because we're unfamiliar with it. So it's mm-hmm. wow, how do you do that and so I think that's a good start. Yeah. I do think that this movie then actually takes his ability to manipulate sound mm-hmm. and that becomes the crux of what is going to save the day or cost the day if you want to get sure. down to it. Oh yeah. For me in this film <clears throat> there's a really interesting theme that De Palma's playing with which is what do we do when we're blinded? Like if you're blind, then the secondary <clears throat> stimulus that you're going to fall to or since you're going to fall to would be your ability to hear. And for a lot of this movie, I kept thinking Travolta's blind in this movie and the powers that are going to protect them are blind in this movie. Mm-hmm. So to give him this ability to kind of schlockily sort of weave in these these audio tracks and see that he's so frustrated in the ability to kind of apply them mm-hmm. creates a cool thing because what is going to be the thing that saves the day, if you want to call it saving the day, mm-hmm. is not being used to its full ability at the beginning of the film. Yeah. And as he gets good at it, it kind of makes things worse as we go further. Definitely, especially the situations he puts some of the other characters in. All of them, really, the, right? Yeah, yeah, even himself. Yes, now, one of the things, so so he has to go get this new scream now because it's just awful. It's the worst scream ever. And, and the wind sound effects sound like he was whistling while taking a shit. And so, yeah, he's got to go into nature now to go, like, get some stuff. But, like, it's the first five minutes of the film. Yeah. Now, on Rice Smile Films, we talk a lot, like, stories like the forefront of kind of our basis of discussion. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important because, to me, story is the bones of filmmaking. Yeah. Um, it it, sent, it gets you, gives you a skeletal structure of how to have a flow. But to me, uh, the sound, cinematography, lighting are kind of like the skin and, like, the, the hair of the body, so to speak, to make a full feature. Mm-hmm. To me, one of my favorite things with the Palma, and there's some other filmmakers that dabble in this technique, he uses what's called the split diopter effect. And I'm sure you're going to notice this, especially in that shot with him and the owl. So a split diopter is essentially having two focal lenses at the same focal length, so they're both in focus at the same time. 
Now, usually on film, this isn't possible with the camera lens because something has to be out of focus, your foreground or background. This allows you to have both in focus, which is a little odd like to look at. But I think he uses this really well because he wants us to pay attention to two things at the same time. Whether it's later in the train station, he's got like the different kind of arrows of which uh, uh, subway landing to go to. And then him and his reaction. Or we're watching him react to people talking in the background. So I think it's it, it has a purpose. It's, it's moving in some type of thing. And whenever whether he's using split screen or this... I think he has stuff in there that's making us pay attention to important elements of his of his storytelling, especially in the opening credits scene. Like, how boring would it be to just kind of watch him mix sound or and separate with television footage? I think a lot of other films would kind of present that to us with just watch this TV footage for like two minutes and we kind of get a little bored or watch him for two minutes. We get a both side by side and kind of how they correlate his profession with setting the stage of this Liberty Day uh, festival that they're doing with the with the upcoming governor. What's interesting in that sequence to me, so we're watching John Travolta splice some sound um, into some, some footage in this film yeah. as we are split screened. <clears throat> watching a newscast about an upcoming presidential election primary season. Yeah. The presidential election primary season is a visual that is the most boring visual ever. Yeah. yeah. And so the sound becomes more important mm -hmm. and not the visual. Yeah. The flip is yeah. watching him work with his machinery to create these new tapes to put into the movie is watching someone make sound yeah. and the sound pieces that he's putting on the tape is boring and watching it is what becomes entertained. So yeah. you get a very interesting dichotomy of sometimes sound can be mm -hmm. really boring mm -hmm. and it's the visual that's important. Yeah. And sometimes it's not. And it's such a an interesting way to set a tone or a playing field for the audience, which is yeah. here's a visual yeah. and maybe it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's just the sound. Yeah. And the sound matters. Again, you're blinded mm -hmm. in this scene in a certain extent. Mm. I think that's a really interesting way to disarm your audience. Yeah. And I kept, you know, as I'm listening to this reporter say, well, the error of margin between this candidate and this such and such. And then all of the reels and spindles and tape that's being interwoven through the sound footage machine. Yeah. With no sound but the visual. Yes. That's really cool. Like, yeah. That's an, what an interesting way to... To yeah. get me in. Yeah. I love it. Into in to the world, to essentially the plot. Yeah. Because that's the plot. Right. And kind of this dichotomy of just the the use the use of, of, of sound, which, again, and then he's saving time, too, because we're getting a both at the same time. Right. Which is, that's the biggest thumbs up right there. And you're giving backstory because, okay, so maybe this has, they wouldn't give you that much political stuff and there's a, unless there's a political mm -hmm. espionage-ish type mm -hmm. angle in here. And certainly that plays out as well. Yes. Yeah, I think that's really, really well done. That, that's the brilliance of Brian De Palma. Mm -hmm. That split screen technique that he uses so much. Yeah. We talked about it in Carrie. Mm -hmm. It's done so well. Yeah. And again, it's done in a way that is... You can look at both of these and maybe the one image on the left, which is the, the sound footage, is more interesting. But there's a totality to both of them that you need the eyes on the sound machine Ooh, good. and your ears on the visual element. Ooh, that's good. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Like, I think that's so well done by him. That's good. Yeah, he's making, he's forcing us to use a lot of different senses. 
for the other sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, they both have to work in 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 conjunction together. Yeah. So then we get this 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 great kind of him capturing sounds out in the wild, whether it's the owl or this frog or this couple, and they think he's a peeping tom. Did you find that scene phallic? Oh, de- like yeah, his phallic yeah boom mic. Yeah, yeah definitely peeping tomish almost. Very peeping tomish. Yeah, he's very voyeur voyeurish in that. Well, there's a lot of voyeurists in this film, whether it's him, John Lithgow, or. Just like, yeah, or just kind of the, the splicing together of this footage. The two on the bridge that he's audioing mm-hmm. say, this is a peeping Tom. And he smiles as he just keeps the mic on him and just stays with he's He's okay in that space. He's okay in that space. And here's what I like about a good mystery film and, and just kind of like when you set the stage properly is there's a lot of opportunity to revisit the scene of the crime. So from here, we actually get it from we're watching his perspective of this situation. Then later, when he's in the hotel room, we see it from his point of view of how he saw the scene. And then later, we see it through the splicing of the the photography. And then together with that mixed with the sound, there's opportunities to come back to it to kind of peel back the layers to kind of let us know what was there. And we kind of get it here in the first. We get that. John Lithgow's character, we find out, he has this garrote wire in his in his wristwatch, and we hear this sound that's unidentified in that open this opening bit. I think the stage is just set very very well, and then we get the blowout moment, and then we get the car in the river. So why don't you take it from from here? Uh, one of my deepest fears is being stuck in a car as it's submerged in water. <laughs> Because the water eventually fills it up and the oxygen decreases and decreases. And it's like this really slow burn yeah. that ultimately leads to suffocation. And you almost wonder, like, well, how do you get out of there? You either roll the window down, you let all the water in. Or you open the door, you let all the water in. Before you get in, though, because it creates a vacuum effect once it's in there to yeah. where you can't open it. Yes. So you're kind of stuck until the vacuum effect balances out with the equal pressure inside and outside. Yeah. And then the door opens, maybe. But then it might be too late because there's no oxygen left. Yeah. It's really, really a terrifying moment. Like, I think about that a lot. Yeah. Pray to God that never happens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Travolta, Jack, yeah. sets down his audio equipment and dives in the river to try to fish out this woman. And what happens in that is really important because obviously he saves her. But the secondary part is the guy who's got the potential to be the next maybe president. Yeah kind of rises up from the car mm-hmm. and I'd forgotten all about this part. Obviously he's he's bleeding and dead. Yeah. But it almost looks like there's a, a hole his head or something, yeah. Almost looks like it was shot. Mm-hmm. And it could be impact from the car yeah. hitting the the water. Sure. But I don't think the impact from the car hitting the water would look like that, do you? Mm-hmm. It's weird the way that he's He's carrying on with this girl in the back seat. We don't know who this guy is yet, but he's gone. Yeah. So now he's got to save the girl and breaks out the the window with the rock with and the rock. fishes her out, which is also very Vertigo esque. Yes. Oh, and, yeah. And the gold under the Golden Gate and yeah. brings her up to the surface. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. And then yeah, it, it, then it takes on this kind of stalkerish tendencies because right. he's kind of like he doesn't want her to leave. He doesn't. He wants to be around her a lot. Yeah, Jack's uh, tendencies and motivation, yeah, they're very Jimmy Stewart-like mm-hmm. from Vertigo. I'm, I'm glad you made that comparison. But we kind of get it here in the hospital of, of who it was. It was this this governor hopeful who's going to potentially be president. McRyan? Yeah. Yeah. 
and he's kind of been yeah kind of flitting around with this this woman nancy allen sally who's not quite a prostitute but not quite like a call girl what did you kind of get because we get a little later she's just kind of meant to be made like 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 they were selling photos right so she's got a buddy and the two of them have created a racket where they use her as the honeypot to then put the male in a compromising position and then shoot the pictures for leverage over the mail. Mm. Well, that sounds like a terrible person. She's obviously a terrible person. Yeah. You know, she said she's not a prostitute, but I got to tell you, although we don't actually ever see the act. It feels like it. Man, for the right price, I'm pretty sure she can be had. Yeah. Because that's the reason she's doing this anyway. Yeah. Which this also then ties back Mm -hmm. to Madeline Elster, Kim Novak's character, and Vertigo as well. Mm -hmm. For the right price, Mm -hmm. I'll play this part for you. Yeah. And sure enough, a lot of this movie is um, an homage to Hitchcock and an influence clearly on De Palma. Yeah. And I think Nancy Allen carries it out fairly well as far as... Yeah, is she the hooker with the heart of gold? Is she? A, I think the answer is yes. Yeah. Maybe to both of those. That's cool that you said racket because that to, to then I kind kind of come back to it is it's it's almost kind of noirish to to an extent. Certainly has that element. It does. I like and when I was looking at kind of like like I've never been to Philadelphia and God bless the city of Philadelphia, but whatever streets they decide to film in, man, they're like grimy as shit. Mm-hmm. And it's like with what it's the use of the neon and it's like raining and that water. And you get the sax. Of course you do. <laughs> I get this very noir vibe from a lot of these like establishing sequences here. Everything's just so grimy, especially Dennis Franz is just so grimy. <laughs> Agreed. Look, I mean, she yeah. is the epitome of the femme fatale, isn't mm-hmm, she? Mm-hmm. The one who chumpishly drags along whatever unwitting male yeah. for with the lure <clears throat> of sex. It's her whole modus operandi. Yeah. What I love about this film, though, mm-hmm. in that regard... Is Travolta never really fully takes the bait? Yeah. I think he's interested in her. Yeah. Whether it's she's not willing or he's not willing, the fact that they never consummate the traditional film noir role of femme fatale Mm -hmm. is probably why he ends up surviving at the end of this film. Sure, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Because we'll get to her and what that means for her. But yeah, it's... You know, on a lot of lists yeah. of great noirs, you will see this as yeah. a noir film. And I always, I haven't seen this movie in a generation, Jesse. Yeah, tell me the first time you saw it, actually. Well, this goes in the chapter of Matt and his irresponsible babysitters, because this is another case of that. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a joke. I, I realized yeah. that driving over here today. I'm like, oh my gosh, I saw this for the first time with my babysitter named Marie. Yeah. And I think my mom had a, a late shift one night at the hospital. And so we decided instead of staying in our house, we're going to stay at Marie's house. And this was on HBO. And I was old enough to mostly get it, but certainly not old enough to watch that opening sequence. Yeah. But Marie just didn't give a damn. And one more time in my life, a babysitter let me cross the line of what I shouldn't watch. And it's, I've never come back. I got to say just real quick, like God bless HBO and it's like infancy, yeah. especially in the early eighties, because what I guess what people might not realize is with the rise of physical media, Blu-ray, DVD, VHS prior to that, there was no way once you saw the film in the theater, it was gone. And there was no way to watch it at home mm-hmm. unless you spent thousand dollars for Betamax, which would come around later. But like the one real way to watch these films recirculated was on services like HBO. What was really cool too is there was, there's always been release party events for movies in theaters, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. 
HBO used to send out a weekly or a monthly publication that was a t- yes. like a TV digest yeah, 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 yeah. kind of deal. Yes. Uh-huh. And they would have a rollout to the Friday premiere of the new movie. And they had a whole sequencing yeah. of first showing on cable television premiere yeah. of the movie. This was one of them. Mm-hmm. There was, I think, uh, I there's several that I saw in that yeah. regard. But this was that Friday rollout. Here you go. Yeah. Bammo. I think it's just really important too, just because like if, if if services like that didn't come out, I think a lot a lot more of these films would just be forgotten, just because there was no way to like watch them after the fact. Like video stores weren't a thing yet. Right. You couldn't watch home media at home, which is interesting. Unless you were like a Star Wars and you were getting a re-release like every couple of years, and that was your opportunity to go see it again. You had no option. That's awesome. I love that story. You and the babysitters. <laughs> Thriller, Fright Night, Blowout. Yeah, just keep going, just keep on, going. And on and yeah. on and on and we'll on. We'll have to see what, what pops up next. That's awesome. Well, excellent. So now we're kind of setting the stage here. We got this now. We got this political intrigue when we get one of the, like, the associates of the governor kind of says, there was no woman in that car. Uh, you, just, you need you need to forget about it. Like he was just alone. His family doesn't need to be hearing about that. And he's just like, well, I can't just forget about that. I recorded it and everything. So now we're kind of setting the stage for I think a great time period in film of political thrillers. Whether it's Three Days of the Condor or All the President's Men, there's a lot of these great types of like political espionage thrillers being made at this time right yeah three days of the condor is exactly what i thought did you robert redford yeah that's a good movie dunaway Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah the the landscape is rife for that politically in the united states in 1980 we're at the height of the cold war Mm -hmm. there is a lot of political espionage yeah um conspiracy this that and the other thing and if the audience finds that interesting and that's a social commentary, why not play on it? Yeah. Because it there it is interesting. What is going to happen to you and I mm-hmm. if the forces that oversee us in supposedly a benevolent way, aka the government, yeah. is in fact only after their own asses. Yeah. So what then? Yeah, what then? Yeah. So then you then you, then you start to kind of get into these ties of like like all, all like the like the Kennedy of conspiracy and especially Kennedy conspiracy. Sure. I think I told you I was like this is very Chappaquiddicky like going off the bridge like this right. with the woman in the car too, and then kind of the next uh, follow up sequence we learned that Dennis Franz this other element was on the bridge doing still photography of this entire kind of sequence and they published that in the magazine. So what does John Travolta do in a very just like I love his you mentioned to me like this would be impossible now because like this would be on social media and there's like everything's like on a point and click computer phone. There's a lot more piecemealing that had to be done back then. So he essentially makes his own Abraham Zapruder film Mm -hmm. of the incident to splice with his only element that he has is the sound. Mm -hmm. Again, the mixing of the visual and the auditory. I think it's just done very brilliantly in this film. And it goes back to a celebration of the process in Hollywood or filmmaking that had often been forgotten. Mm-hmm. Consider Nancy Allen's character, too. She's a makeup artist mm-hmm. and seems to be fairly talented at it from yeah. the little discussions we see her having with Travolta's character. Mm-hmm. So we've got makeup and we mm-hmm. have sound guy. And those are our heroes. And a lot of the first half of this film is watching Jerry, John Travolta's character, go through the process of splicing and editing and a celebration of that of sorts it's mm-hmm. Brian, Brian De Palma to his credit giving a nod of respect to those people that make films that often 
are not given much notoriety and it's less nauseating than like a story about hollywood like once upon a time in hollywood where it's just like you know celebrating the town and its accolades or whatever yes it's i think it's less on the nose because now we're looking at the craft and in the studio and like it's so cool because like the shit he was doing like splicing film and tape is such a pain in the ass in college, I took a 16 millimeter film class, and it was a nightmare, total nightmare. I would just, I was like, I just wanted digital, and I would film my footage. And the only place in America that could develop 16 millimeter film, because Kodak's not a thing anymore, was a little studio in Burbank, California. Hmm. I had to overnight UPS my film to Burbank to get it processed, to then get it sent back to me. And I wouldn't know if it was good or not until I got it back. Wow, what a hassle. And then once I had the film to put it together to make a coherent like uh, narrative, you had to use the splicing machine with, with, with splicing. It was so time consuming. But I, I, I respect that craft of him trying to literally put the pieces together because he has one element, but he needs the rest. I like it. I, I I just I love him in his little room, just trying to figure out well, what can I what can I put together here. So again, back to that idea of we're blinded in a sense. He has the truth in audio. Mm-hmm. What he's afraid is no one's going to believe what he says. Yeah, it's almost a henny penny sort of thing. Oh right? yeah, yeah. No one's going to believe what I say. Because what you hear isn't as important as what you see. Oh, yeah. And that's a consistent theme throughout this movie for me. It's- so now what he has to do is get that magazine that has the footage from the racket between Dennis Franz and Nancy Allen and take some scissors to it. And we've been reduced to filmmaking at its most rudimentary level, which is what you and I did growing up where we had a book and we drew the little stick a man in the corner. Book. A flip book. Yeah. And so then trying to score a flip book, mm-hmm. man, we've gone back to the great train robbery, Thomas Edison. Yeah. Actually, well, sound. So maybe Nosferatu. <laughs> yeah. And we, that's how far back we've gone in order mm-hmm. to get to the truth. And I think that's also a really smart moment or message by De Palma is all of this lipstick we've put on these pigs. Yeah. It's still fucking bacon. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you still yeah. have to get down to the bacon. Yeah. That's funny that you said there's there's no truth in audio, but there's truth in visual. See it. That's funny how how, how the brain works and how it's able to process that. Mm-hmm. So there's no out for him. He can't just go to the media or the police with the audio because, oh, you just made that in the sound studio. What's he going to do? Say, listen to this. Yeah. Bang, bang. There's two bangs. This has to be a gunshot, and here's the tire. They're like, we don't even know what this is from. Yeah. This could be from one of your movies, and he says that. Mm-hmm. And that's also really cool, too, because he works yeah. for such a schlocky... D-list slasher horror crap studio. Yeah. He's disregarded in that way as well. What was the line they said that they'd made five movies in two years? Five movies in two years. (laughs) All slasher. Yeah. So that is working against him too. And that's also a statement. Yeah. About the filmmaking Credibility. Yeah. Yeah, So it's that whole, that, that. Eiffel Tower that's been constructed mm-hmm. on what you see versus what you hear is so well supported mm-hmm. in a really intelligent way by Brian De Palma in this movie. And in between all that, now that, now that we're getting a little bit of the political espionage element with John Lithgow's character, who's kind of this like hitman of sorts, but kind of this rogue hitman of sorts. He's just kind of he's just off his off the rocker. Mm-hmm. And we kind of find out that he is a part of some espionage to get him. It was it was just going to be a frame job. Get him with the woman, and we're going to turn it into, like, a Clinton thing, like Monica Lewinsky type of sex scandal. 
But no, he like blows the tire out on this thing. Governor dies. Now we got like a whole murder investigation on our hands now. So they want nothing to do with him, but he's convinced he's going to tie up every loose end at need be to kind of even kind of create this own like pseudo serial killer in the streets of Philadelphia. They called the the Liberty Bell Strangler. I like that little graphic that they had. It had like a, a strangle rope in there, and you have like the Liberty Bell like behind you. Yeah, it's like the, the visuals like it. it Again, De Palma's in command of what he what he's trying to show in front of us. A lot of the deaths in this movie mm-hmm. come with the background of some patriotic element. Whether it's Lithgow's I Love Liberty pen mm-hmm. or the fireworks at the end of the film or the part that you just mentioned. And if you put that background of red, white, and blue mm-hmm. and then death before you mm-hmm. as we're looking at that, the question is that he's posing is what exactly are we celebrating Mm -hmm. violence? Yeah. And then it's funny that he would make that comment. Cause what I will contend is Brian De Palma's greatest gift as a filmmaker is his use of violence. Yeah. He's really good at violence. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't think it's tongue in cheek or trying to make fun of himself. I just think he has an awareness in his filmmaking that for me in the last three or four weeks especially, Mm -hmm. I have found a complete devoid in. This man is very self-aware of what he's doing as he's making a film. And I find that so refreshing. Oh, definitely. Yeah, he's, again, he's a a filmmaker. You know he's in, in, in charge of his craft. And we don't talk a lot about the auteur theory and, you know, you know, when you can find a stamp on a film. We talked about a little bit with Tarantino. Yeah. But like, with I, I know I'm watching a De Palma film because it's a split diopter, a split screen, like use of violence, use of color. I think he walked into like there's there's that great moment too when Lithgow's trying to look for similar uh, Sallies uh, in the world to kind of create this thing. We get that great kind of triple zoom in, and his photo of Sally staying in focus, and then as we zoom in on the escalator until he sees his target. And kind of the way it's lit, again, we get that noirish type of lighting in this stalker element. I mean, you don't just kind of like walk into a set like that. Like that's that's staged by the master in charge, which is De Palma. So you said two things there, and then I'll let you get back to the story. But I have to mm-hmm. echo you in this. Mm-hmm. You brought it film auteur theory, which is, I think, important that it comes up in a neo-noir film that we're doing. Ooh, good. Those two mm-hmm. are inexplicably intertwined yeah. or, or or meet beautifully. And I think the reason that noir doesn't work right now mm-hmm. is a lot of the reason that there's not a popularity with auteur theory is it takes a little bit of work. Ooh, good. Okay, so that's just the landscape of film. The yeah. second thing, though, man, and you hit it, yeah. okay? Yeah. That, that comment, similar Sally, mm-hmm. Isn't Hitchcock also famous for the similar Sally? The blonde. Right. Yep. Like the fascist ice queen that's Mm -hmm. blonde. And so, again, in a very self-aware, and it's not just by chance that he walked into this. It's done on purpose. The similar Sally is, again, taking what's an established subtext in Hitchcockian genre film. Yeah. And using it in a way that's not so on the news as I'm going to only cast blonde ice queens, but using that as what the killer's going after. Well, let me ask you now. That's so great. Yeah, let me ask you now. Does it feel ripoff to you or like paying homage? Because I I feel like a film like like Tarantino, I feel like he's kind of like ripping off because he's such a film fan of Kung Fu or whatever type of film he's doing. Here, it's, it's, it's so 
it doesn't feel on the nose to me. It, it it's done, I think, very subtly. It's not because the lep the the depth that we're having to get to and the analysis to get to that mm-hmm. is not so on the nose that it's someone gagging you with Hitchcock cotton candy. It's not that sweet. <laughs> yeah. So it's done subtly enough that if you want it, it's there. And if not, then it's not. And but that's also why I earlier I said I really want to watch Obsession. Mm-hmm. I've never seen it. Yeah. But it's from everything that I've read the most closely aligned remake of a Hitchcockian film. And that's saying something because Dress to Kill to me is really, really close at moments to Psycho. But that one might be where we cross over the line of subtle to, uh, I don't know, gregarious. And maybe that changes things. But no, I don't think it's a ripoff. Yeah, upset, yeah Obsession, uh, Cliff Robertson. There's a great Brian De Palma documentary out there. I think it's called the palma actually i think he talked about obsession and him and cliff robertson had a bit of trouble making that film we have to do that film yeah that, that was pretty john lithgow's in that one too right yeah that would be like a, like i don't think there's been too many instances where other than a new release where we haven't seen it but like an older film where we both haven't seen it yeah. that, that'd be pretty cool mm-hmm. but let's kind of get back on track here with just kind of the piecing together of you know kind of trying to put the truth together with what they don't want them to hear and you know, Gervolta is kind of... I, I like how he starts, too. He's fairly sane in that initial studio recording booth. He's lighthearted. And then as and as most political thrillers go, the more, the more you want to go down that rabbit hole of the truth or the obsession to find the truth or prove the truth, your lead character starts to get a little, like, frantic and kind of goes, goes off the rails, too. And we kind of get that in now. I, the, one of my, my two favorite sequences, you already mentioned one was this kind of flip book kind of piecing together of these elements with his sound is this element when he goes back to his studio and all his tapes have been erased by the magnetic uh, tape, tape eraser. And the camera does like an interesting just kind of 360 and, it, and it's slow and then it gets faster and faster as he's frantically kind of going and he's like, all my shit's been erased. Yeah, like it's it, it's it's done so we're paying attention to other elements of of the of the of the set, which is again to the De Palma's credit, we're seeing what we need to be seeing. We're not just staying static. To me, it's a refreshing kind of compared to films like Terminator, Dark Vader, whatever shit I've seen this year. To me, this feels like a film. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Can I say something? And maybe I'm reaching on this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Go ahead. Go ahead. This is the wrong way to say this and hopefully you'll get the answer that i want if you just said frantic if that's the plural if mm-hmm. frantic is plural what's the singular of frantic frantic frenzy yeah frenzy yeah this camera's in a frenzy in the middle of that room yeah you ever heard of a movie called frenzy yeah <laughs> right i know it's a bit of a reach but are you sure yeah because as i was watching i'm like man this is such a frantic moment i'm like oh frenzy mm-hmm there's so many corollaries in this film and the way it's done between a guy that we both idolize, Hitchcock. Again, oh, yeah. there it is. Yeah. And yes, you hit the nail on the head. This isn't a movie. Yeah. At this point, this is no longer a movie. Yeah. This is this is a film, yeah. and Shot in the Dark is a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Entertainment value, which they can both have. Yeah. But this goes to what we or what I was just saying. Mm-hmm. Auteur, noir, those are films, mm-hmm. and. It's fair if you don't want it, if the listeners or the viewer doesn't want to do that because it's a bit of work. And if you're not going to get the shovel and dig down into it to find themes and metaphor and corollaries and such, that's fine because it's work. You don't have to. Yeah. I mean, no one can begrudge. Like we go to film to be entertained. Yeah. 
at some point though, I think you see so many films that you start looking for the deeper thing because it becomes refreshing or, yeah. or new. And this movie delivers that in spades because it's work. It's work to watch him splice film. Yeah. You have to appreciate the process, and that is the whole crux here. Can you appreciate the process? And doesn't that speak to kind of a rewatchability factor with film, which is kind of Most. a problem I have with a lot? Like, I could—I don't think I could ever watch Terminator Dark Fate ever again. I couldn't put my body through that experience one more time. Fair. But something like this, I think there's there's new things to like kind of find out in in the films. Where the first time I'm just trying to figure out the plot, just tell me a story from beginning to end. On second viewing, I'm kind of looking at like. The use of color and how he's using the sound to kind of, you know, piece the rest of the story together. Because there's more to it than just kind of just what's presented in front of you. To digging deep for rewatchability. Yeah. Gene, what are you going to do? What? What are you going to do? What do you mean, what am I going to do? What are we going to do? What do I have to do with this? Oh, you cut the shit, Sally. I know what you were doing in that car. What do you know? That you and your friend Carp were setting up the grind to be blackmailed, getting scummy pictures of you and the candidate getting laid after the Liberty Ball, right? What'd you do, tell him that running water under a well-lit bridge gets you hot? Who told you that? I got a look at your earlier work, some uh, motel candid camera shots. You got nice tits. Who was paying you to flash them for McRyan? I wasn't in the car. Haven't you been reading the papers? How long do you think Henry's cover-up's gonna last? I just talked to a reporter who knows everything. They have erased my tapes, they've made you disappear, and next it's going to be me. But I'm not disappearing, I'll tell you that. Yeah, I am. Yeah, what makes you think it won't be permanent? What's that supposed to mean? Well, didn't I meet you in a car wreck ten feet underwater? Yeah, but that was an accident. Manny wouldn't get me hurt. Well, didn't he get you into the car? Yeah, but... but, but yeah, but he didn't know that the tire was going to be shot out. He didn't know that. He couldn't have. Oh, come on, Sally. If I hadn't been there to pull you out of the river, you'd be dead right now. Don't you get it? One of the things we talked about a little bit earlier was Jack's ability to use sound as his superpower, if you will, or his his protagonist good guy power. Mm -hmm. Well, we do see a failure of that earlier in the film, and we go through on a date that he basically has to Jimmy Stewart, um, Nancy Allen into, like, demanding that she goes and has a drink with him. Yeah. They start talking about their previous... Yeah, there you go. Mm -hmm. Start talking about their previous jobs. And one we find that Jack had was working to bring corrupt cops to justice. That's yeah. a terrible way to say it, but that's essentially what it is. Yeah. Get a flashback, mm -hmm. and he's put a wire on this cop who's infiltrating a modern-day mafia. Mm -hmm. And... I don't even know if what exactly is going on is is totally understandable because it's kind of not. Like, who's saying what and who's the other guy and who's brother? It doesn't matter. We just know that Travolta has wired this police, this this beacon, the Harvey Dent of the blowout yeah. world. Yeah. And then the guy starts sweating mm -hmm. and it causes a reaction with the wire on the cop. And he's hearing this through the earpiece as they're following the cop and the bad guys to rendezvous clandestine X point yeah. of trouble. Yeah. Well, it ends up costing that cop his life. Yeah. Because he goes in the bathroom, the mafia capo, I'm assuming, yeah. goes in there and hangs him mm -hmm. with his own mm -hmm. wire that Travolta put on him. 
Well, that's why they shave you when they do a wire, so your hair follicles don't sweat and short circuit the machinery. Right. Yeah. And I love the sequence in the car when this this wire is shorting out on this cop. Yeah. And you can just see the beads of sweat that are from pain he's either, rolling down his head. He's either being burned by a battery or he just had like the worst burrito and he just got to get to a bathroom. Or he's <laughs> on his way to a meeting with Bold Films in the middle of summer in Los Angeles. <laughs> or he's mad. <laughs> or he's me. Yeah. There you go. So the pain is making it even worse. Yep. Okay, if if, if that's what you're good at, mm-hmm. and it just cost someone who's supposed to protect all of us their life mm-hmm. by the prospects of doing good, where do you go with that? Mm-hmm. So we've now created the other trope that's really important in noir, yeah. and that's the protagonist with feet of clay with yep. a questionable background. Mm-hmm. I think that checks those boxes. Yes. Go ahead, have at it. Yeah. And... It, it's going to pay off later because he's going to do it again. He is. Yeah, with, with, with Sally, but we'll, we'll kind of build up to that. With his not-girlfriend. With the, Yeah, his not-girlfriend. Again, it's very, it's very obsessive, like, now that I think about it. Like, because they, they never, I don't think they kiss. kiss. They don't have sex. No. It's just kind of like he's calling her constantly. He wants her to see the footage. He wants her to stay in town. He's trying to convince her that we need to speak the truth. Otherwise, they're going to rub us out. And she's just kind of like, I, literally, after every one of his lines to her, she's like, let me see if I can do my best, Sally. Gee, Jack, I, I don't know. Like, like it, she, she says it about 100 times in the movie. She says, like, she's like, I don't know about, let me think about it. Jack. She's like, dumb as a post. Yeah, but she, she she wants no part of it, too. She's very hesitant to kind of get in, involved in this kind of, like, scheme of sorts. Can I run something by you? Go ahead. All right. He's got, like you just said it, he's going to wire... Uh, Sally a little bit later on in the film mm-hmm. to wire Sally a little bit later on in the film. Yeah, what does he have to do to her? Yeah, undress her, stripper. Yeah, is Brian De Palma shy in film about showing flesh, stripping his wife, in anybody? <laughs> yeah, we s- no, he's not. But we don't yeah. see that in this movie. Yeah, that's fair. so. Again, it's restraint. Yep. And I think that also plays into the line that you can't cross in noir. Because if you go there mm-hmm. and we see it with the femme fatale, yeah. it's curtains, man. Yep. So again, Brian De Palma in a subtly and smart way. We look at the beginning of the film. It is so in your face with boobs and sex to not let that happen to protag yeah. and non-girlfriend. It- Furthers mm-hmm. that not only the tension yep. as us between them watching, yeah. but protects Jack in a certain state, yeah. but puts her at risk because we've already watched him kill someone in this regard, and yeah. maybe that's going to happen again. Yep. Let's kind of set up our kind of last act of the film. All so right. this guy Donahue works for a local news station, and Jack's our. John Travolta Jack is ready to kind of take all the footage and whatever he's put together. They've gotten the original uh, film footage from Dennis Franz, who's just been eating chili dogs with his... <laughs> Why is he so greasy? He just like leaking grease on his shirt. Yeah, like blood and coffee-stained wife beater. It's so gross. It is so gross. He's a... I think Dennis Franz, I think he was in Dress to Kill as well. I think you're right. I think we're working with the same collective of actors, you know, a rapport of sorts. So they're going to take the footage to them, but like in between all that, John Lithgow's kind of put his foot into the door. He's tapped Jack's phone line. He's listening to the calls. He's blocking his calls. He's calling Sally, and he's setting up his own rendezvous mm-hmm. to get the footage. 
It's a great scene too. It's just him furthering his psychosis to allude to this Liberty Bell strangler. In this scene with this sailor getting a blowjob in a telephone booth, this 20-second blowjob. We had a good laugh. Oh, that was hilarious. No, no, too fast. Damn it. Damn it. $40. He gives her 10 <laughs> But then it's the stalking element of the film that we've been kind of set up at the beginning. This isn't a slasher film of sorts, but De Palma's kind of taking stuff that was either set up by Carpenter or from some of these films with this boogeyman this kind of very mysterious figure that john lithgow portrays i tell you of any of the scenes that were kind of hard to watch for me was him hanging that girl and we just kind of pull back and her feet are dangling in the bathroom stall that's that was a little rough like well he teases you with it because he brings that garrett wire out of his watch and then almost gets her here and then she looks up and he pulls it back and he's just waiting for her to move the toothbrush and understand this woman is brushing her teeth because she's rinsing out the man who was just in her mouth so that she can go and get another man in her mouth in about five minutes, which is John Lithgow's character. Yeah. So he sets her up for another uh, encounter, I guess. Mm -hmm. So all he's waiting for is the difference between or the space between the toothbrush and her mouth so that he can slip the wire between the two. And man, that's handled in such a way where it's almost there and then it's back and then it's not. And you're just like, just fucking leave the stall. Yeah. Well, she's not going to leave the stall because he finally gets her. Isn't that a good suspenseful filmmaker too? Like I like you were use the word tease because that's the, the end scene of Dress to Kill is Nancy Allen in a in a, a shower mm-hmm. and she kind of sees the the blonde woman in the trench coat and I swear it's, it's maybe five minutes long where oh, yeah. she's just like taking her time like I know someone's there. I got to take my time. He teases you. He drags it out. But not, I don't think ever to the point, at least in this film and in that one, where you're just like, man, get on with it. Because you're just like, man, maybe this character has a, a shot to get out of here scot-free. And, and he doesn't. And, and yeah, she, she doesn't make it right. in, in this one. Right. So he's wired Nancy Allen. She's going to go make the rendezvous. But then kind of through the catacombs of Philadelphia's subway system, kind of gets lost. And Jack's just kind of now on the frenzy trying to find her before it's too late. We also have some pretty good jokes about just like Je- uh, John Travolta in his Jeep just topping curbs like nobody's business. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> Driving through the streets of Philadelphia, just parading through whatever Liberty parades they're having because it's now a race against the clock. And he's got to get her because he knows this guy's no bit. This isn't the real Donahue. It's a ruse. And yeah, Sally's like next up on the platter. And, and it, it's all been kind of set up by this inevitable Liberty Day patriotic parade uh, in the city of Philadelphia. Again, Travolta blinded because he can't see where she is. He has to hear where she is. And mm. he's got to use the wire that's on her to track her down amidst I don't know, multiple miles and thousands of people mm-hmm. and without having the ability to see that. Yeah. And I'm going to get to there when he does actually get to see her again and how that does not portend well for yeah. poor Sally. Yeah. I think it's just a really continue, like a really cool continuation of something that De Palma has set up and played out so effectively in the movie. What do you do? If you're blinded, then you have to go on what you can hear. Mm -hmm. And one of those is entirely less important than the other until you really need it. Yeah. I just think it's so well done. Like, imagine being in a subway. And, like, if she gets too far away, Mm -hmm. she's out of radio shot now. Yep. 
So as she's running or being taken away with the bad guy, the the prospects of him finding her are not just distance, mm-hmm. but it's depth of ability and distance. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I, that I, that is so so well done. Yeah. Yeah. The like it, we got this chase element too. So now that we have the final sequence here at like whatever fireworks display that they're gonna have here at this parade. John Lithgow's character gets the footage, the video mixed with the audio. Thankfully, they, they they made a copy of this, so it's it's not the end of the day for this. But once he throws it into the to the river, into the water here, I think Sally knows that the 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 jig is up, and like she's 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 next up. So it's about her trying to get away, and then just like a, trying to commit a murder amongst masses type of a scenario. I got a lot of North by Northwest vibes here. I know it's not quite Mount Rushmore, but this kind of like race up to kind of this pedestal, microfilm. Uh, all yeah. of that, Jesse. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The only thing missing is Martin Landau. <laughs> right. <laughs> but no, I, I I like this sequence. And then again, we we don't talk about it a lot, but it's just like the use of the the red, the white, and the blue. The fireworks are, you know, they're going up in the air. But then we're just it's almost it's very police siren like lighting on on them, like that's kind of masking the murder. But like it's it's also trying to get Jack to. Hurry his shit up so he can go, like, potentially sit. But again, like you said, he's blind. He doesn't know where she's at. And the sound from the fireworks explosions is not doing him any favors either. I think because... I think that's the point where he, he pulls the thing out of his ear. Right. Yeah. And then sees her. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then at some lower angle, he sees her and John Lithgow engaged in some struggle. And so now he's got to... He sees her. Mm-hmm. He doesn't hear her anymore. He sees her. Yeah. And the minute he sees her is where things, I think, take a really dire turn. Oh, dire for, for Sally. <laughs> yeah. And that's the whole point of this film. Yeah. To me. Yeah. What you see or what you hear, which is better. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now, up the stairs to try to get there in time to save Sally from the fake serial killer who's just trying to create. Um, like a side story. It's, yeah, exactly. it's a cover story. A, a distraction yes. from what this political assassination was. From what's really happening, yeah. I'll let you have the end. So the end is, you know, to me, I think it's it, it's shot very well. So Jack gets up there, you know, kind of stops her from being stabbed. I think she's been stabbed already. And she's already been strangled. Mm-hmm. And he, he stabs Lithgow to kind of, you know, do away with him. And then in a moment that I think could come across as, you know, pretty cheesy and whatever film, we get this kind of pan around with him holding, again, Sally's, but it hasn't been like intimate at all, but like he's really heartbroken over this. And we get this nice like kind of 360 pan with the fireworks going off. I think it works very well. I think it's it's a nice kind of sort of conclusion for, for his character, but it also speaks to, I think, just the unwinnable nature of this plot. You either speak the truth and maybe you'll be ridiculed or you remain quiet and they try and flush you out and they're going to kill you anyway. Like, what What do you do in this instance? And it's Jack's actions that put Sally in danger that ultimately get her killed. This is the police guy all over again with her mm-hmm. using it as a bait, which is what a wire is. So she dies in his arms or was dead in his arms with the explosion of patriotic USA behind it. So again, you can make from that whatever you want. There's lots of different ways to go. Yeah. And then the next sequence is we go to 
a broadcast of the events from the previous night, mm-hmm. and it's a completely inaccurate retelling of what happened again. Yeah. So the point is then furthered. That's yeah. actually not what happened. We just watched it. Yep. And we're hearing this other thing, which is a lie. Mm-hmm. So now we're mm-hmm. in the position that Jack has been in the whole movie. We are superior to the people in the film because we are in a knowing state. Yeah. Another very Hitchcockian trait to use. Mm-hmm. Arm the audience, disarm the people in the movie, and you create tension. Because unless you can break the fourth wall, there's no way to tell them. Yes. So there we go again. And then we go to the final bit, which is back in studio. Yeah. Watching that shower sequence Funny, it's a shower sequence yep. or not. Yeah. With a scream that now works, and sadly, it's... Sally's scream. Sally's scream. Mm-hmm. Jesus. And it works really well, but he can't listen to it. Because leading up to that, we've seen him isolated amongst like snowy Philadelphia. We still see him, and sometimes past, and he hasn't taken the time to put his recording room back together. Because it's still a mess of frenzy from when he was checking all the tapes. Like To me, at this point, Jack is just so broken at this point that even if he was gonna like speak the truth and put that out there he's just he's ruined now at this point i would almost venture that it's a vertigo-esque ending mm. now at the end of vertigo stewart overcomes the vertigo with the death of kim novak yeah and this it's kind of the opposite but it's the same thing and you're left saying wow mm-hmm. that movie really was about vertigo mm-hmm. this movie really was about being able to hear yeah. the right thing yep. or hear the truth. Yeah. Jesus. Exactly. And it's a dour ending. Boy, isn't it? Boy, it's dead. We didn't get to do what we said we were going to do. He can't even listen to it on the screen because he's just so traumatized by the whole experience of it all. And then we cut we cut to black and we roll credits and we're like, man, like that's it's a pretty dour ending for think, think it, about, Yeah, it's super dour and think about like what do you can if you want to take away the auteur idea of that, mm-hmm. and that's not to be too Jack Nicholson in here, yeah. but can you handle the truth? Yep. Can you believe what you hear, mm-hmm. or do you have to go with what you see? Because one of those seems to be, in this movie, yeah. a much easier out. It's a really troubling end, yeah. because, again, it says, do you really want the truth? And if you take the context of the political piece that this movie's built on yeah it's clearly a political statement on these fuckers are lying to you yeah but do you really want to know the truth anyway yeah and maybe the answer is no no yeah because anytime you because they're peons amongst giants to find the truth in all that man you risk life you have to because they're they're no they're essentially nobodies exactly amongst this story of governors and politicians and all these you know Stendral cohorts, you know what I mean? Like right. it's, it's. What do you hope for, to gain from that? And at the end of it, and it's you know, might not be a satisfying ending for a lot of film goers out there, but it's you don't kind of get the, the truth doesn't get out there. It's 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 restrained within within the sound. Which, well, the right, the truth is out there, and it's also in him, mm-hmm. and the good guy gets to the truth mostly he doesn't probably quite understand the full assassination attempt but he gets it and then what a curse yeah not only did it cost him his non-girlfriend yeah but he gets to live with that and then juxtaposed against the red white and blue backdrop i mean this is clearly yeah de palma saying hey some shit's going on and i know deep throat and all of that other stuff but yeah are you sure 
Yeah. Are you sure? Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't want to be so sure. Yeah. And it's that that's the it's it's the end of the film and I just when watching it and especially talking about it now, I just kind of come to it. I was like, man, there's a there's a lot more going on in that film than just kind of what's on the surface. Yeah. And I think that's that's probably better time now more than ever to kind of let's rate blow out. We have rock cut, well, call single barrel and top shelf again. Our liquor theming. Matt, I'll let you go first with your uh, uh, rating of blowout. The only thing that keeps this from being top shelf for me mm-hmm. is a couple of questionable casting choices. Sure. Uh, this is just a personal thing. I'm not a huge John Lithgow fan. Yeah. Uh, I know that he's, for some people, a really good villain. We can talk about Raising Kane or even Dexter. Mm. Uh, he had a nice run in that for a season. Yeah. Uh, he's just, he's not a great villain to me. Yeah. He's too doofy. <laughs> Do you know? I know what you he's, mean. He's not scary to me. He's like yeah. the guy that coaches the seven year old soccer team on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is what it is. Yeah. Dennis Franz is atrocious in this movie. <laughs> and he's going to get better going forward. Well, he's definitely. really good in like is, NY- is he, NYPD Blue. I was yeah, yeah, Hill Street yeah. Blues or yeah. NYPD Blue, whichever one of those it yeah. was. Um, again, we talked about Travolta's successes and failures a little bit. We can get into that. That might be a one shot one day. Nancy Allen has some of that as well. Mm-hmm. I don't think she's great in Robocop, but she's great in Dress to Kill. Yeah. And she's pretty damn good in Carrie. Yeah. I don't think she's great in this. Yeah. So that's the only reason that this isn't top shelf. Yeah. But it's certainly single barrel plus. Yeah. So, I mean, listen, we yeah. just had a really cool talk about it. Yeah. And if we were allowed to do what we're going to do with the ranking of top three Brian De Palma films, yeah. this probably boots out one of my three sure. and makes it in, but we kind of don't do that. So mm-hmm. um, t- single barrel plus casting and that has to maybe that's budget maybe that's a that's pretty good that's a good rating though like and sure. i, I kind of see what you are with the casting because i'm i'm not the biggest john travolta of, I, lo- I love him in pulp fiction and i love i love him in saturday night fever and, and this film but outside of that it's like there's not a lot out well, look who's talking like okay but like so the casting is questionable but like i i don't think they stumble i don't think that for me that doesn't hamper the film too much yeah. because i think it's still just kind of like the foot's on the gas the whole time and something we didn't mention and this would be perfect segue for our, our nightcap as well which is i don't want to call it it's not it's it's a remake of sorts but all, like a reimagining of sorts this was an original uh, italian film by michelangelo and, and antonioni called blow up and it's just it's still photography versus uh, sound, mm-hmm. which I think that that's an interesting kind of play on that. But I the the way De Palma's in control of just making this film, and we're talking about a man who had already done Sisters and Phantom of the Paradise and Carrie, Obsession, Dressed to Kill, and now he comes to this, and this is a bit of a turning point for him because his next film after this is Scarface. Now it's big time. Yeah. Again, kind of looking at like John Carpenter's trajectory. Like this is like the, the Scarface is the thing moment for both of these directors. Kind of like you've been pretty kind of low budget, auteur-y up to here. Let's give you a little bit more money to play with and see what you do with it. And I think they both kind of do decently with it Yeah, to some extent. So I'm a little spun right now because I had forgotten completely that Phantom of the Paradise is him. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I tell you this right now. I know there's a lot of Rocky Horror Picture Show fans, and like I get it, but I don't get it. Yeah. I like 30 minutes of that movie. I think I would rather watch Fan of the Paradise, and that's not great either. 
But I think I'd rather watch that than Rocky Horror, and they're very similar. Like, those are very similar films. This has nothing to do with anything other than that movie for just a minute. Yeah. And I don't want to... Like, I should let you do finish your rating. No, go ahead. Go ahead. So, the dude that's the main guy in Phantom of the Paradise, the glassed guy... That, yeah. What's that cat's name? The character or the actor? The actor. Garrett Graham? Okay. Yeah. I'm watching... We started last night season... Three or four of Goliath. Okay. The Billy Bob Thornton lawyer, which I freaking love that series. Yeah. He's in that. Is he? The Phantom of the Paradise guy, Graham, Graham Garrett. Graham Garrett, yeah. He's in Garrett that. Graham. Garrett Graham. He hasn't aged today, man. That's awesome. I looked at Denise. I'm like, I, I know. It's, yeah, anyway, so. You know what other movie he's in? And again, talk about a dark horse film that nobody's seen other than like a few people is used cars. Yeah. Again, Robert Zemeckis, like that's, that's another HBO one for you, I think. Yep. But I, I think I'm with you as well. I think this is single barrel plus, like top shelf minus. Like this is just, it's so close. It's just teetering. So close. It's so close to being just like absolutely like a like a perfect filmmaking in its entirety. I really, really, really like this. I, I think this is my favorite De Palma. Film. Okay, so is this number one for you? I think it, I think it probably would be. But again, it's just. I think all the work up to this film was him kind of just honing his craft of split screen, diopter, storytelling, just directing in general. And I think he just knocks it out of the park in this one. And I think it's just a shame, too, that I, unless like I found it here on the Criterion, there's a whole story about how I got involved with like watching these films. Uh, I don't think people know about it. You know what I mean? Right. So I hope we're doing a service on this podcast to have people find and watch this film because... There's some good stuff in there. Lots of good stuff yeah. in there. And I think with the background that we might have given or maybe some possibilities for theme or or story context, yeah. uh, if that's already back there, then I think the beats yeah. have a little bit more meaning. Mm-hmm. Like when he's getting new sound to do a better job at his job, yeah. how phallic that is and mm-hmm. how that plays into De Palma. And yeah. there's just so many kind of interesting elements, but also it might be Jesse. Yeah. If this, I, I probably would say, yeah. if you're going down the De Palma Road, yeah. this probably isn't the first bus stop. You probably don't want to start with this. Movie, no, 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 no. Right? This think, is a little bit more acquired. I think Carrie's like a very good entry point for a De Palma film. I would even say, sure, Carrie, mm-hmm. Carlito's Way is probably mm-hmm. pretty palatable for the first time through, even Scarface, if you can manage the three hours. Yeah. This probably is not your first foray no, into no, no, the no. De Palma. Demography. I say that about a lot of directors too, like uh, the Coen Brothers, especially. Yeah, you sure. can't just like go in blood like simple. Start with Blood Simple. You can't, you can't go in with Blood Simple. No. I don't even think you can go in with Big Lebowski or no. or any of those. Like, you got to start like True I, Grit. Fargo's, I think, a pretty good pet, like starter, just because it's a a bit of both. You got to be careful with them because, like, mm-hmm. yeah, like you can get off on the wrong foot with those guys, and that's a certain tone that those filmmakers put in their films. Maybe we're being too snobby. Let's not be that snobby. We're not being that snobby. All right. <laughs> so kind of talking about how this is kind of a reimagining remake of sorts of blow up this foreign Italian film. This isn't the first time this has happened in Hollywood. And I think there's some good options out there. And I think there's some shit options out there. Like you mentioned Let Me In. Getting rid of the most important part of Let the Right One In. Yeah. So Matt, my question to you is what's the best American remake of a foreign film? So... Before I get into that, the thing I have to say is, as I was looking on some research, yeah. man, do you know how many foreign lists had La Jetée at number one? With 12 Monkeys? Number one and number two. Really? Persona was in there. Mm. But man, I found La Jetée on so many foreign lists of musts. Mm. 
I because I didn't look like direct translation from A to B. I just like like sure. amazing foreign films, and then from my own recollection. So at least I could talk about something that I've seen. Remake, yeah. Brother Lajete is everywhere. Really? Is that movie that amazing? I don't think it's that amazing. Oh my gosh. I think what's it's interesting because sure. it's still photography, and it's only like thirty minutes. Thankfully, I think Twelve Monkeys is actually a better version of that telling, right? To an extent, yeah. So. You know, between La Jete and Twelve Monkeys, you get four hundred blows. You get eight and a half. There's there's certain ones that conformist. Yeah. There's certain stuff that always shows up. Uh, La La Dolce Vita is always on there. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a couple considerations, and I'll get to what I chose. Okay. You know I love Solaris. I'm surprised you didn't pick that. Actually, I love that film, the Soderbergh one. Yes. Yes. Um, so that's that was one. How's that not? What's number? <laughs> I got. Oh no, know. no, do you, you dude, this is, you're gonna be like, of course it is. Oh, come on, this is, you're gonna like you know you know me well enough to know you're not gonna be surprised. I know, man. I love Solaris so <laughs> much. Like that's like top five for him. That's he's it's sitting there with Unbreakable. <laughs> Maybe not that high, but it's certainly top twenty. Yeah. Um, Scent of a Woman, I think, is one that's a possibility after the same title. I believe by an Italian film. Mm-hmm. To that, by the way, did you know that's where. The term Oscar bait actually originated. Really? That was the first movie that was officially declared Oscar bait. Awesome. Holiday Hmm. with dramatic rock performance through a notable actor. Really? That's the, that's, there you go. And it worked. That's Oscar bait to a T. Isn't that crazy that that's (laughs) his only Academy Award and it's not Michael Corleone or Dog Day Afternoon or it's, that's Pacino's best actor. Scarface for that matter. Scarface. Yeah. Okay. So that's in there. I mean, you can't but say Ringu. Not because of mm-hmm. the Ringu to the Ring, but what it did for all of the, the Japanese J- horror. The J-horror. Yep. Okay, mm-hmm. so all of those are close. Here's the winner, though. Yeah. The original is Fanfare of Love in 1938, and okay. the remake is Some Like It Hot. That's pretty good. Arguably the best of its genre maybe ever. Yeah. Top comedy pos- in the discussion ever. That's Billy Wilder at the top of his game. At the top of his game. Yep. So that's... Look, brother, that's better than Solaris. You know yeah, I love yeah. Solaris. Some like it hot's better. Sure. So that's my my winner, as much as I love Solaris, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of not even close. Okay. It's some like it hot. That's that's the top shelf of top shelf. I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about that one one day. Yeah. Because that's, that's a, a talk about Marilyn Monroe and Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis. That'd be great. Um, no, great. That was probably some fun research to kind of be like looking at like a lot of these kind of foreign imports because I think it happens more frequently than people think. Mm-hmm. Like The Departed is mm-hmm. a foreign import, uh, uh, Infernal Affairs. Mm-hmm. There's a few out there that I don't know if people know about. So Last House on the Left is actually a Ingmar Bergman film, uh, The Virgin Spring. It's the same premise, this kind of like rape revenge film. Uh, that one didn't make my list. I, if I had to pick one, and I, it's another film, much like Blowout. I know no one's seen it, but they need to. The curse of this film is that it opened the same day as Star Wars. So anything that comes out that day, is, it's cannibalized. I know where you're going. 1977, we're looking at Sorcerer, yep. a remake of Hen- Henry George Clouseau, uh, The Wages of Fear. Roy Scheider. Yeah, Roy Scheider, yes. So for The Wages of Fear, first of all, that's already a pretty great film. If those haven't seen it, if you it's it's about these workers that they're trying to find work first of all, but then they get tasked with those that wanted to drive these trucks filled with nitroglycerin through very treacherous territory. And I kid you not, you would think watching cars drive 10 miles an hour would be boring as shit, but it is suspenseful as it possibly can be. That original is really good. 
This is the same film, Source, directed by William Friedkin. This is the film he makes after The Exorcist. And Roy Scheider, it's amazing. It's so... The suspense is unbelievable. There's like this like rope bridge bullshit scene where you're just like, Jesus Christ, like they're trying to go over that with a car filled with nitroglycerin. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Accompanied by a brilliant composing uh, soundtrack by Tangerine Dream. Mm. This was before like every film in the 80s had to be like very synth heavy. This is pre-Carpenter and all of that stuff. And they, they got a really cool soundtrack in that film. And I know no one's seen this thing. We got to talk about Sorcerer one of these days on Rye Smile, but I don't even know where you'd find it. You just It's not on any streaming service. It's it's almost a lost film. It's almost lost. And you're talking about a director who had made the, the biggest horror film of all time prior to that. Mm-hmm. And it just happens to come out the same day as Star Wars. That's the curse of that film. Sounds like we might have the first two entries in a future cask of stuff that nobody saw which would be obsession and yeah. sorcerer and yeah i don't know what the third would be mm-hmm. like citizen kane that's, <laughs> yeah. a, that's a joke but something that no one's ever seen Everyone's... like star wars mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <coughs> i love both of those choices yeah they're great here that's... to that yeah good job to finding yeah those diamonds in the rough mm-hmm. and that's hard to do and but that's so worth it when you do that like this movie yeah and that's what people tell me. It's like, Jesse, you're so hard on movies. Like, like it probably, people probably did like Terminator, Dark Fate, and, you know, all the power to you. Yeah. But, like, if you're hard on stuff, it just, when you find those those gems, just kind of like, man, that was, that was great. That satisfied every craving I have about filmmaking and film viewing that I just, I need in my life. That's that. And when you find that, yeah, you hold on to those close. Like Les Miserables. Or the film maybe we're going to be talking about next week. So let's just kind of set the stage. It's who done it. We're going to talk about it. So we've had a pretty by the books, you know, inspector investigation of a murder. We've had a political assassination of sorts in this film. Now we're going to look at a kidnapping. Matt, set the stage. A movie that, again, nobody saw, mm-hmm. but is really amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm not even going to lie. Like, the, my rating on this is going to be stellar. I'll just I'll let the cat out of the bag. I'm mm-hmm. not going to kill this movie. Yeah. Man, it's Prisoners. Hugh Jackman, Terrence Howard, Jake Gyllenhaal, Jake Gyllenhaal. Mm-hmm. Buckle up, Buttercup, because that is not at all what you think that movie's going to be. Can I just say too, like again, just talking, maybe it was botched marketing or something. I saw, I remember seeing that poster at the theater and just being like, man, that's like that's a hack job of a poster. It looks like the worst Photoshop. They don't even look real. I, I don't want to watch that. I I was at work. I remember where I was. You called me and mm-hmm. said, Jesse. My wife and I just went and saw Prisoners. You have to go see that. I was like, yeah, I'll go see it. It was like mad. It was like four months later. Yep. I watched it at the house and I was like, holy shit. How did I not go see that? That happens again with the never another very important film um, that we'll, we'll talk about one of these days. But man, it introduced me. To, I talked about him last week, Danny Villanueva. This was kind of his first big American film. Mm-hmm. It's It's amazing. I won't shy away from my rating of it either. And I know there's so many people out there that have not seen this film. I'm going to ask everybody in Rye Nation a huge favor this week. So mm-hmm. the minute you finish with this podcast, which I think this has been a pretty good one. I can tell usually when you and I start riffing that it's I'm, I'm going to enjoy the listen myself. So I think this is going to be a good one. Yeah. Go find this movie and please watch it before we do it mm-hmm. because we're going to do it and we're going to blow it up. And it's really going to take the teeth out of what this film is. Mm-hmm. Go watch the trailer first on YouTube. Yeah. And you'll be like, oh, that's just some kind of revenge movie. Yeah. And then be ready for what it is and 
isn't mm -hmm. because that movie is not at all yeah. how it's advertised. Much like another movie, there's there's there's. Ah, should I do this? I'm gonna do this anyway. Go ahead. There's three films I I remember distinctly leaving the theater and calling you immediately. This is one. Mm -hmm. One was about time, and the other one was Split. Mm -hmm. Those are the three films that I distinctly mean like Jesse. Yeah. Don't walk, run to this theater. Yeah. Right? Is that fair? Mm -hmm. There might be more, but those are the three that I really remember. Yeah. Please watch the trailer and then find this film. It kind of fits the season. It's a Thanksgiving movie, which also... It, it is Thanksgiving. That's it what, is. Yeah, that's right. Which also kind of hid... Like, it's not a Thanksgiving movie. No. It's a... This is not a holiday release. It's real dark. <laughs> February. This is a February release. Yeah. This is that sleepy... Yep. You know what I mean? So you're going to give Taken a crack, right? Yep. This is that movie. Yeah. But at, at this time of year... Yeah. Ryan Nation, please. Yeah. Do me a solid. Yeah. Okay. Go see this movie before we review it next week. It is, I promise you, it's worth your time. I don't think Hugh Jackman's ever been better. No. I, I love Jake Gyllenhaal in this mm -hmm. thing. Okay, well, we'll, well, no more spoilers. We'll save it for next week. What's his name? The um, kid from... Paul Dano. Paul Dano, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Paul Dano's in this film. Yeah. Ooh, and there's some great... And the mom. What's the mom's name? Melissa Leo. God, come on. Yes, yeah. How Ma did this movie not kill? Maria Bello. Yes. Yep. Yeah, great cast. You got to seek it out. So that's on the docket for next week. So... Cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. I'm going to take this microphone. Well, I'm going to go record some bird sounds. I hope I don't hear like any like any like murders happening on it because like I don't think I would go to the media or the police either. <laughs> My question is, though, if somebody calls you a peeping Tom, do you have the stones to stay with it? <laughs> Probably not. Me either. Excellent, Rye Nation. We'll see you all next week. Everybody have a great week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And please rate, subscribe, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, Stitcher, and leave us an email at ricemileproductions at gmail.com. Blowout is property of Viscount Associates and Filmways Pictures, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Screen. Oh, Jack, more, more, more on the screen. Start it. Bring it up, bring it up. Let's, let's All right, I'll give you a little bit more on the next two. That's wonderful. What do you think the rest of the movie is? Well, okay, we bring on the beginning, you know, he